Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Indian Ocean World Podcast. I'm Archishman Chaudhuri, a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Center, McGill University. Today, our guest is Professor Dennis Matthias, a professor at the Eberswalder University for Sustainable Development. She's a research scientist who specializes in environmental sciences and developmental policies, especially on the issue of wild honeybee hunting in the Philippines. Professor Matthias started her academic career as a biologist at the Ateneo de Manila University in 2001, where she earned her bachelor's in biology in 2005. She followed this up with a graduate diploma in environmental sciences at the University of the Philippines Diliman, and she moved on to finish her master's in environmental sciences and policy from the Central European University in 2012. Professor Dennis Matthias wrote and researched for her doctorate in agricultural sciences at the Bonn University in Germany from 2013 to 2017. Since then, she has held a number of research positions and postdoctoral positions, particularly at the German Development Institute, at the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona in Spain, and most recently at the Institute for Social Ecological Research in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, while she developed a career in academia, Professor Matthias also worked with different NGOs uh, on conservation practices of Asian honeybees and issues related to climate change. She's a member of the NGO Non-Timber Forest Products Exchange Program, where she works as an associate with indigenous communities and their livelihood. She's also a fellow of the IPBES on sustainable use of wild species assessment. Professor Matthias has published widely on various themes concerning the hunting of giant honeybees from Asia, especially the Philippines. Without much further ado, Professor Dennis Matthias, I welcome you to our podcast and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Artist Man. I'm so happy to be here and to talk to everyone today about my research on giant honeybees. Thank you, Professor Matthias. I was wondering if you would like to start off with a rather general point about what your research is. And can you tell our listeners, how did you develop an interest in studying the wild honeybees from Asia? I mean, especially maybe their correlation with the local habitats and what implications do these honeybees have for the larger environment? Yes, yeah, so actually what happened was in 2012, I was working for a consultancy called TMP Systems and we were developing financial mechanisms for smallholder agriculture and community forestry. And that time we were collaborating with the NGO Non-Timber Forest Products Exchange Program, so NTFPEP that you have earlier mentioned, where I'm already an associate now. And then during my visit to one indigenous community hunting wild honeybees, they mentioned that they had some issues with the sustainability of the hunting and gathering. And for them, 
the honey season, so it's called the honey flow, which happens during summer, summertime in the Philippines. It's like a very abundant season in terms of financial returns. So they get a lot of money by selling honey. And then after that, they would say like, oh, it's back to eating just whatever they can find. And then I, and when I then started to do my PhD, I had a different topic, but I also got exposed to this idea of uh, transdisciplinary research. We're in the problem, the research problem derives from social issues or social problems that communities beforehand have already identified. And I thought there is already a problem identified by the communities themselves. Why don't I start my research from that? Because it's, it's a research need that the community said that they needed help with. So I then decided to totally abandon my first research uh, idea for my PhD and then moved on to develop a research in Asian honeybees. Because I know that, as you asked uh, Archisman earlier, that with a local habitat, um, I'm thinking mostly of how can this help the indigenous communities for their livelihoods, while at the same time promoting the idea of non-timber forest products, that we develop non-timber forest products so that communities do not cut timber and sell it. And then we can conserve the forest. So this is essentially where uh, I was coming from. Thank you, Professor Matthias. I I'm just going to uh, build up on this aspect of studying the honeybees, uh, the Asian honeybees. As I had been reading your research, I was struck by uh, I was struck by a very specific point which you make that the Universal Honey Standard Codex, which is called the Codex Elementarius. And its quality criteria, everything is based on the European honeybees. And this does not recognize the Asian bee species. In this respect, you have pointed out how honey harvesters from Asian countries, especially India, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, organize a quadrennial conference called the Madhudunia uh, to discuss issues that are pertinent to Asian honeybees. I'm just wondering if you could tell us about uh, the politics around the scientific debates that shape often the discourse around Asian honeybees. I mean, does this lack of recognition of the Asian honeybees stem more from uh, a market-oriented um, scientific research and uh, ideas of promotion where investors fund and help endorse the European honeybees? And, you know, if you could tell us how does this eventually shape the scientific discourse around Asian honeybees in terms of a sort of maybe a global North versus South debate? Yes, this is a very interesting question because a lot of researchers, a lot of NGO proponents from the Philippines have pinpointed this issue of the Codex Alimentarius. So every time we have this Madudunya, it always pops up. But as you, as you know, the Madudunya is a quadrennial conference, so it happens every four years. And still, there is no progress. 
but as you said, it's highly political. So I also presented at sort of a, a webinar for the Philippine embassy in Germany, and then the ambassador was there. And then she pointed out that the Codex Alimentarius cannot be changed just by having civil society people proposing, but it's actually political in a way that government should be the ones proposing the changes. And with the, the current standard for honey being based on Apis mellifera, this somewhat, somewhat puts the other Asian honeys at a disadvantage because they are measured by the yardstick of the Apis mellifera. And for example, Apis dorsata, it's an open nesting species, meaning it's exposed to the elements, it's exposed to moisture, it's exposed to rain. And so its moisture content would be higher than that, that one of Apis mellifera, which are actually domesticated in boxes. So their moisture content is not that high. And in this sense, the Asian honeys cannot compete because of this standard. And that's where we see that there's discrimination for the Asian honey in the market because the standard, they don't reach that standard, which has been set for all honeys, but actually it was based on only one species, which is the Apis mellifera. So still, this is already well known. This is well recognized. However, I'm not really privy to what's going on at the background. So there needs to be, I guess, more lobbying um, for this. Um, for us, from us scientists and also those from the NGOs, because we see that there is much potential in terms of forming a niche market. So that means getting more payment, getting more value for, for honey. If this is the honey from, from Asian honeybees, for example, if only it's recognized as it is. And so your question about the globe, global north versus south scientific debate, I was thinking it's actually probably a chicken and egg um, question, you know, like they would say, yeah, there's not enough research on Asian honeybees. So we only have a lot of research on Apis mellifera, which is the European honeybee. So this is definitely what we can use as basis for Codex Alimentarius. But on the other hand, since the standard is only for Apis mellifera, then it lags the other Asian honeybees just lag behind and we don't know what's um, what's happening to them. We don't have an idea. We, we just know that um, bees, the Apis mellifera bees are, are dying off. Um, but how about there's not enough research on, on the other honeybees. And this is something of, I guess, a global importance knowing that there is a huge diversity beyond just Apis mellifera. Thank you, Professor Matthias. Um, I'm going to build up on your last point and probably ask you one more question. Um, you have argued that often 
the European restrictions on non-recognition of the Asian honeys. Uh, this prompts even Asian governments to direct conservation practices, research and economic priorities as well on the European honeybee species. Could you tell us uh, what kind of repercussions this has on a national scale for the different honeybee species uh, across Asia? Um, I mean, I can think of an immediate example from India, where in the eastern Indian state of West Bengal, the government tries to promote and endorse indigenous uh, communities based around uh, fragile mangrove delta of the Sundarbans, which is near the Bay of Bengal. And the honey procured by indigenous communities is endorsed and marketed by the government as a special product. Are there similar counterparts from the Philippines or Vietnam or, uh, the, or the other countries which are part of the Madhudunia? Yes, so actually just thinking about from the Philippines, there are sadly no such efforts like the one in the Shundabans. And so what happens now is that for for us, of course, we, rec we really recognize that the Asian honeys can be, um, meaning like the, the honey from Asian honeybees. So we call this actually forest honey or wild honey. So can be organic. So again, we need the chemical testing from laboratory to confirm this. I, I did one chemical test on the samples that I got during my field work and the, the response from my collaborator in Germany was, wow, this is super honey because it just didn't have any of the chemicals that normally is allowed um, for honey in Germany to have. So they allow a certain amount of, of chemical because the Apis mellifera or the European honeybee, they suffer from uh, so-called parasites. Um, and then they use miticides, so to kill mites, uh, varroa mites. So sometimes these miticides also go with the honey. And so there is this allowed, there is the allowable amount of chemicals to get into the honey. But for at least for, for the forest honey, we see that it's just in the forest. Um, I also sort of traced um, the area where they were foraging and then tried to look at um, through remote sensing um, the area where they go. Of course, we don't really follow where they go, right? But we still have an idea that this is within the forest and it's special in a way. Um, so I argue that these honeys are special. This forest honey is special because Palawan is um, where I did my research is the so-called last frontier in the Philippines. So Palawan Biosphere Reserve. And it has a very high biodiversity and there are also endemic trees. And we see that the honey could be similar to wine. Um, the idea of terroir or that this um, graves can only grow in this type of terrain, etc., and then it has a distinct taste. So we also 
think that it's possible for honey that it will have a distinct taste that only comes from an area. And this is from a marketing point of view, something that we would like to use for the forest honey. But this is not being recognized because in the Philippines, it's just honey, whether it's coming from Apis mellifera, whether it's coming from Apis dorsata, the giant honeybee that I worked with. And so it's not given that much attention, sadly, like um, unlike the one from the Sundarban, that the government, the government is actually promoting it. So until now, no, there is a lack of recognition for their special characteristics. Thank you, Professor Matthias. I'm going to move the discussion a bit more towards Philippines. Um, you make two significant, very significant points. Um, while um, surveying the areas that uh, that produce uh, that produce the Asian honeys uh, in in Philippines, you make this point that there is a strong correlation between a low level of formal education and correct identification of the giant honeybees, and uh, uh, the decrease in vegetation cover limits the presence of the wild honeybees or the giant honeybees. Uh, which again limits the opportunities for non-honey hunter-gatherer members of the communities to interact with these bees or to you know a sort of uh, acquire knowledge or experience about wild honey hunting, gathering, and conservation practices. But this acquirement of knowledge or knowledge production on the honeybees, you have argued, it's a continual process that requires renewal through time to time. So I was wondering uh, if you could tell us a bit more about what has changed in the Philippines in the past couple of years, especially in areas of um, areas of wild honey hunting, conservation practices, and how indigenous communities have responded to this. For instance, you, you argue that 90% of the respondents who correctly identified the honeybees live in an area of high vegetation cover. But as I understood from your research, these areas of high vegetation cover are often incongruous. I mean, in the sense that they're not located close by or next to, uh, next to each other. So are there, um, are there any uh, differences within these, uh, within these different regions? Uh, because honeybees, as you have pointed out, honeybees and societies support each other in a shared ecosystem or what you call the social ecological services. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us how uh, changes from climate change or decrease in vegetation cover have affected sustainable honey farming in the Philippines, which as you have pointed out is often dominated by economic benefits rather than a clear ecological understanding of the issue at hand. Yes, uh, sure. So let's go first to um, the first one that you mentioned about uh, the result that I got about the correlation between low level of formal education and correct identification of the giant honeybees and for for us, this was a surprise because we always thought that 
the more highly educated one is, the more that they would do correct identification of species, perhaps. But so for us, the proxy here for local knowledge was the giant honeybees. And so I did some statistics on this and saw that it was quite robust. And it was also a surprise, but not really, um, because there is the push nowadays to get indigenous communities, indigenous children to study formal education. And when they do, they have to leave the forest area and then they stay sort of not in the city, but it's just a center where the, of the province. And in this way, they lose the connection to the forest and they lose connection as well to the day-to-day goings-on in their families. And as I've mentioned, I think this also touches upon the sustainable development goal on education, that there needs to be a qualification or, I mean, qualifying that indigenous people should be able to have indigenous education. So education that still promotes their culture and tradition. And this is something that's that's so far uh, not very well institutionalized in the Philippines. And actually to add um, another thing, um, another thing is that indigenous communities back home are very much discriminated against. So it often happens that some indigenous children would rather not identify as indigenous because they get picked on at school. And it's, it's ongoing. It's an ongoing thing from then until now. And I just wish our society would mature better to understand that there's just this diversity of people present in the community. Um, as for the vegetation, so yes, um, we also see that the honey hunters um, were, were saying that the vegetation cover was slowly receding. And so they had to slowly go up uh, further in the forest to look for honeybees. And so then this renewal of knowledge is gone because the non-honey hunter-gatherer members who don't go with the honey hunters deep into the forest, they go, don't get to experience this seeing the hunting or just interacting with the honeybees themselves. So this is um, this is something that we see changing within within the local community, and that now with a sustainable honey hunting, probably more motivated by economic benefits, it's it's also a little bit changing the practice. So, for example. Sustainable honey hunting means that you only take the honey part and then you leave the part where there are the baby bees or the brood. But actually they do that um, probably for sustainability, but actually they, they do that because the honey 
honeycomb or the beehive regenerates after one to two weeks and then they find honey again. So then this, we, I, I don't know anymore if it's, it's really a sustainable way or if it's, just, if it's an economic practice. And so these are, these are the changes, so very dynamic how, it, how it's working, but at the end of the day, it's a practice that they've been doing since time immemorial, I guess. Um, even in history books, this has been chronicled. And we just hope that it, it continues because as you mentioned earlier, Achisman, their climate change is also affecting the, the honeybees. Um, so sometimes in the summer, it's too dry. So they don't have any nectar to look for, or there would be this sudden rains that are so strong that the blossoms or the flowers just drop to the ground and they get destroyed. And then the honeybees don't find nectar again because it's just, there is no flower. So hopefully, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully that it will still be able to persist given this global changes happening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Professor Matthias. Um, I will stay on with this point on sustainability of uh, honey hunting and you know, development of honey-related products a bit longer. I'll just build up on my previous question and especially on uh, some of your responses to that question. Um, you have pointed out respondents who, although they appreciated the effectiveness of the regulations, uh, that try to ensure sustainability of wild honeys and uh, honey development of honey-related products uh, from wild honeys. Nonetheless, as you pointed out, these respondents also complained that honeybees moved away from the lowlands up to the mountains. This, as I understand, resulted from a decrease in the vegetation cover, which reduced the foraging area for honeybees forcing them to look for more suitable um, habitats. A corollary to this, as I presume, is uh, the wild honey hunter-gatherers would also encounter a loss in livelihood. I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, about a, a bit more about the demographic impact of the movement of honeybees. So what happens to wild honey hunter-gatherers in areas that no longer support the honeybees, do they switch to other professions or do they also migrate to areas where the honeybees have moved? And uh, in cases where they do move to areas where the honeybees have uh, migrated, does this um, cause tensions over use of limited uh, forest resources among different wild honey hunting gathering groups? And how does the government try to address this problem in its policy making? Yes, yeah, so definitely this is an issue. And sadly, the government doesn't really care. So, and I think maybe on the one hand, it's also a positive thing because if this gets really regulated, then there could be a lot more red tape, a lot more bureaucracy. So I think for now, this this at this scale, it's 
working very well that NGOs are helping the honey hunters. However, yes, um, it's an issue because what happens when they don't find the hives easily? They either go very, very far um, and then it takes up so a lot of their time. So opportunity cost-wise, they could have done other things, but then they have to stay in the forest for one week or so. So I've experienced going with them. We were looking for honeybees for three days or so. And then we only found, um, if I remember correctly, around two or three um, hives. And so within those three days, it's the whole day of looking, just looking, really looking at these tall trees and wondering, is there a beehive there? And then next, if you see a beehive, you ask, is this already ripe enough to harvest the honey? Otherwise, no, you would have to go back there later, hoping that you find it again. And so it's, it's just this difficult um, situation. But to look for other jobs, there are actually odd jobs in the off season or other than that, it's just really a loss of livelihood. And so they, they just try to get by, for example, with, with farming or with gathering fruits and uh, selling this. And that's, uh, that's how it goes. Um, as for tensions um, over this, like it's sort of really a common pool resource. Um, they sort of know whose hive is whose. So when a hive has already been found, they put a mark, like an X mark on the tree. And then they know that someone already found it and then they wouldn't touch it. But then what they do is to just really go very far away. Um, so they don't suffer as much from other issues like with a resin collection of a species called Agathis philippinensis. This is where there's a lot of tension, but I didn't really hear of a big tension with honey hunting. It's just really a communal type of gathering that they go together in groups of five or in groups of three or four. And then that's how they, they look for honey uh, during the summer season. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Matthias. Um, I'm going to ask you a few uh, final questions. Um, what are your suggestions as a policy researcher or as a development uh, scientist to sustain uh, the wild honeybees, uh, the giant honeybees and their associated social ecological systems in Asia, especially when we are living under clear signs of a changing climate, which would, uh, which would often prompt a number of uh, climatic anomalies, especially um, I can imagine the lowland forests 
are at a greater danger from rising sea levels in the Philippines. Uh, if you could summarize your points uh, or your thoughts on this. Thank you. Yes, so it's very important that we recognize that climate change is telecoupled. So meaning that these indigenous communities, they don't really have that much emissions, carbon emissions. They're, they don't contribute that much to climate change. But as we could see, their livelihoods are also affected much more the honeybees. They don't really contribute to anthropogenic climate change, but they are very much affected. And tomorrow, as we record this, tomorrow is the global climate strike. And I guess initiatives such as this is very important. Um, and this, just this podcast itself, I think it's very nice that you guys try to highlight these pockets of stories which are which can be found deep in the forest and probably do not really reach so you know this this type of audiences in in the western world and so for us who are working on this social ecological systems especially with indigenous communities we first foremost suggest to be engaged in the global issue of climate change. But on a local level, of course, we hope that foremost, there would be the necessary policies, especially for governments to listen to NGOs. So for example, with the Codex Alimentarius, and then secondly, what can be done to better recognize the special characteristics of forest honey from Asian honeybees in the market. And of course the government has a, has a say on that because they are the ones who are setting also the regulations. And thirdly for, for civil society, it's just um, for us researchers, we try our best to reach out and to let them know that they also have a role in this and just learning to buy honey from proper sources. Uh, of course, there are also issues with counterfeit honey, etc. We would like to support the indigenous communities and hopefully also pay them properly. So that's also an issue we're in. We just say that, yeah, they get paid, but how much? And often, if there are those initiatives that sell this honey, like a special honey, and then they charge so much money for it, but it doesn't go back to the communities. So we also need to have this awareness that it's not just about paying the communities, but also paying them right. And so with that, I, I just call for solidarity with the indigenous communities who are trying their best to live while conserving the forests and of course, the giant honeybees. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Matthias. 
for what has been a very informative and rich talk on the Asian honeybees, especially the species in the Philippines and what kind of challenges the species face from climate change and uh, the hunting gathering communities that are dependent on these ecological systems encounter as well. Thank you also to my colleague, Rene Mandeville. Until our next podcast, I wish you the very best. Stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.